Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. I'm KQED in San Francisco. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, it's relatively easy to generate fake images and videos these days, for fun or for a subterfuge. The software known as DALI takes any words you type in, like purple kitten snorkeling in the style of Monet, and creates it from scratch. Cute, right? But what happens when we're not asking for cute, and the result is misinformation or disinformation? What are the ethical concerns of this kind of technology? UC Berkeley deepfake expert Hani Farid joins us to share his fears and hopes for this new frontier. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. When our producer Caroline typed purple kittens snorkeling in the style of Monet into online software inspired by image generator Dali. It spit out images of cats or cat-like blobs that looked like they were swimming among Monet's famous water lilies. And what's cool is that these images were not created from existing pictures on the internet. They were completely new creations made from scratch using artificial intelligence. Now, if the idea of anyone creating images that never existed before in a matter of minutes or seconds excites you or gives you pause, you can tell us why by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you want to check out some more of Caroline's creations, like cats snorkeling in the style of Picasso, they're on our webpage at kqed.org slash forum. Joining me now is Lama Ahmad, policy researcher at OpenAI, which developed Dali and now Dali too. Welcome to the show, Lama. Thanks so much for having me, Mina. So I should clarify that Caroline used a publicly accessible Dali-inspired software, not the real Dali to create their images. Uh, but but in the simplest terms, how would Dali do it? How does Dali work? How does it take a prompt like purple kitten snorkeling in the style of Picasso and turn it into an image? Yeah, so Dali 2 is a, an AI um, that basically does text to image. So what you can imagine as you were describing is someone can type in a prompt um, and the output would be um, anything you can imagine, a kitten flying in outer space, um, a kitten climbing a tree. Um, and the way that it works, I don't like to anthropomorphize AI, but one way that I describe it to people is imagine as a child, you, you want to draw a picture. At some point in your life, you learned um, the concept of a tree and the concept of a cat and colors. Um, and you're able to kind of construct an image 
if you're kind of like a kindergartner drawing the picture, um, you're able to construct an image from the concepts that you know. And that's how Dolly worked. It learned from pairs of lots and lots of images and lots and lots of captions, um, and basically is able to construct those concepts um, entirely from scratch, even though it learned from existing images and uh, words, language. Um, it will be, be able to construct what that image would look like. You can also in-paint. So select a region of an image and modify it also using words. Um, and you can also create variations on existing images or images generated by the software itself. Oh, wow. And now there's Dolly 2, as you say. So this is higher resolution. The images can look hyper-realistic. Yes, the images can look hyper-realistic if that's what you would like. They can also look fantastical and abstract if you would like, sort of all in the words that you use and how you craft your prompts. Can you also upload images to it, your own images to it? So you can upload images to Dolly. That goes to um, the in-painting functionality that I was talking about, where you can edit regions of an image. Um, that being said, you cannot upload images of people um, and that was a uh, concerted effort on uh, the, the part of OpenAI to really combat misinformation and disinformation related to people. Um, so, you know, I can't take a picture of myself or anyone I know, my friends, to upload it to Dolly and kind of create something with that. That's because we really wanted to limit any um, risks or potential misuses related to images of people. It's a very tricky um tricky concept to kind of think about and, and consider, but it was really important to OpenAI that we are putting out the um, AI that is most helpful, most beneficial to people. And um, at the end of the day, uploading images of people was not something we wanted to allow. Yeah. We're talking with Lama Ahmad, policy researcher at OpenAI, which developed DALI and now DALI 2. Lama, you're, you're getting at why this feels potentially really dangerous, right? Like doctoring images is, is one thing, it's it's pretty bad, but creating something that you just thought of that looks real is like a whole nother level of fakery. You have this safeguard of not allowing people um, to upload images of people, but, but how has OpenAI thought about how Dolly could be used in a malicious way? Yeah, so something that I'm particularly proud of that OpenAI did was even before we deployed, we were working with um, external researchers. So we did a process called red teaming. And what that means is um, we basically try to think of all the potential ways you can break the model. What are the worst things that you can think of and how would they play out and how do we make sure that we have safeguards against that. So before we even deployed Dolly, we worked with um, researchers at lots of universities, academic institutions, civil society organizations that have been thinking deeply about these problems, not just disinformation, but things like bias, things like representations of harmful imagery around children, violent content, a whole host of things um, were things that had to be considered. And so we really thought about this all the way from um, training the model and what sorts of images we include all the way up into development of the system and how it would be presented to the world. Um, and including external researchers was a really important part of that because it's not just people at OpenAI thinking about it, it's the minds of lots of great people um, that kind of helped us to develop our mitigations and make sure that they were working. 
are other companies as thoughtful about this as as OpenAI, or would you <laughs> consider yourself an anomaly? Um, I so I can't speak to how other companies you know are thinking about this or the process, but what we hope at OpenAI is um, we're setting the standard really, really high. So um, at the time of announcing Dolly two, we actually published what's called a system card. That was the result of the work that I was just mentioning, and it outlines lots of the risks and limitations associated with a system like Dolly, and some of the things that we put in place. Um, and the hope was that. Other actors who, you know, we've started to see lots of different um, similar models come out would follow suit. Um, and, you know, we try to do our part to set the standard really high in industry and continue to learn and hear um, feedback and iterate on that feedback because the safety system is always improving and changing. Um, and so that's what we hope. Well, I am struck by this line in OpenAI's content guidelines for Dolly, which it says, to prevent deepfakes, we are currently prohibiting uploads of all realistic faces. Just struck by the word currently, like, does that mean that could change? Yeah, so, um, you know, uh, currently is is a word that's there because we're always reevaluating what it means to serve the best model out there and kind of thinking about, like, currently might mean that um, it may always stay this way. It may actually become even more restricted. It could become less restricted depending on how the technology evolves and what we can do to ensure safety mitigations are in place in the model. Things may change and evolve, but what I can say um, is that any changes that happen will be thoughtfully thought through um, and changes that happen are often in the pursuit of safety. So um, uploading images of people at the beginning was something that we allowed during the red teaming period to kind of see what would happen and we took it away. So um, OpenAI has evidence of like making sure that we're able to make changes that are in the pursuit of safety and safe outcomes and better outcomes for what people want. Well, we asked uh, listeners if they have used Dolly or Dolly 2 or other image generating software. And this listener tweets, yes, terrifying, terrifying images. We don't know. I, I guess, and this might be a bit of a philosophical question, but but why do this at all? Like what benefit does Dolly provide? Do developers ever sit down and say, should we do this and make it accessible even uh, though we can? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's like in the name of the team that I work on. So I'm a policy researcher, but specifically we're thinking about deployment planning. And the, and the question underlying that is what does it mean to deploy models safely and responsibly? And how do you kind of do this calculus of like the pros versus the cons? And like, what does it really mean to deploy these systems out in the world? Uh, I think some of the exciting things that we've seen happen with Dali are changes in how artists are doing their work, a new genre of art emerging, um, accessibility of like um, creating images, like not everyone has the skills to do Photoshop. I certainly don't. Um, being able to make those kinds of things accessible to a broad range of people is something that we hope will be unlocked as a benefit of um, models like Dali. Um, but it's certainly something that we think about, like, how do how do you deploy thoughtfully? How do you, should you even deploy at all? These kinds of questions do come up um, at OpenAI, I can say, and um, are things that we're always thinking about in our approach and um, whether we do something at all or not. 
Well, the listener is wondering, though you are the, though you are developing images from scratch, not existing images, what library did you get the images from to train the AI? So these images are images sourced from the op uh, open source images on the internet, as well as um, images that we've licensed and purchased. Um, so those are the kinds of images that go into Dolly. And again, it's about like learning concepts from images, not reproducing the images themselves. I see. Uh, lastly, the name Dolly, written D-A-L-L hyphen E, can you tell us what it is, what, where it came from? Yeah, so Dali is kind of a play on words, uh, the artist Salvador Dali, and um, you may know the movie Wally. -E. So it's kind of a hybrid the of Disney those movie. <laughs> yes. Um, so a hybrid of those two things uh, goes into the name Dali. Well, Lama Ahmad, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you explaining this to us. Of course. Thanks for your thoughtful questions. Lama Ahmad is a policy researcher at OpenAI, which developed Dali and now Dali 2. And I should mention, while we did use this sort of Dali mini by Crayon, which was inspired by Dali, when we mentioned that we had to use this because we didn't have access <laughs> to Dali 2, uh, the company kindly generated new images of uh purple kitten snorkeling in the style of Monet, which uh, our producers will happily share out on social media uh, for you. So you can check those out. Again, we are talking this hour about Dolly, but mainly about the new frontier of image and video and audio that is getting so much better in terms of fake image, video and audio looking more realistic and sounding more realistic. Uh, so we'll talk about what are all the implications of that after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about Monday. Wall Street Journal energy reporter Catherine Blunt has taken a deep dive into PG&E's fall. She says decades of mismanagement by the state's largest utility and criminal neglect of its power lines that sparked deadly wildfire, wildfires are a tragic cautionary tale for the entire nation. We'll talk to Blunt about her new book, California Burning. And you can share your questions about PG&E ahead of Monday by leaving a voicemail at 415-553-3300 or emailing forum at kqed.org. 
Today, we're talking about how good the technology is getting for generating fake images and video and, and audio. And joining me now is Hani Farid, a UC Berkeley professor with a joint appointment in electrical engineering and computer sciences in the School of Information, also a member of the Berkeley Artificial Intelligence Lab and a senior faculty advisor for the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. Hani Farid, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here again. Thank you, Mina. And I also want to invite our listeners, if you have questions about DALI, other image generating software, uh, or if you have thoughts about what you love or fear uh, about how good AI is getting, or if you've ever fallen for a fake image or video, tell us what you learned from that experience. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So just before the break, Honey, we were talking with Lama Ahmed of um, OpenAI, which came up with that Dolly software that can just generate images from from text. First, I guess, what do you think of it? <laughs> what was your reaction to it? it it's outrageously good. Uh, and by the way, if you want to be the, the the favorite person at any party, get access to one of these image generation because you will have a blast with it. It is really remarkable, and it is. We have seen over the years these incremental steps in AI and computer vision and computer graphics, and this is not incremental. Uh, this is a flipping of a light switch. It is really, really impressive what it is capable of doing. Why is it a flipping of a light switch? I think what's most impressive about it is the diversity of images it can create. So if you look, for example, a few years ago at the StyleGAN work that could generate images of faces and only faces, really impressive, hyper-realistic, but it was very focused on one thing. Uh, these diffusion-based DALI um, type of software, type in anything you want, dig into the deepest recesses of your imagination and it will create something and it is not memorizing. It is not simply regurgitating bits and pieces of images that it was trained on. It has a deep understanding of objects, of um, of relationships between objects, of features of objects. So when you say generate an image of A next to B, it knows that relationship. So it's not just a graphics or image-based generation. It actually understands language as well, which is why you can start with a text prompt and generate an image. So that the control and the diversity and the flexibility and the realism of the resulting images are, are really impressive. Well, Jonathan writes, I was granted Dolly Access last month and have been loving it. I even printed out some of my creations and put them up on my wall. I was originally concerned about misinformation or malicious images being created using the software. However, the programmers behind Dolly have an excellent safeguard for this, blocking many malicious words from being typed, as well as completely removing any pop culture references or notable figures from the algorithm. It creates a system that allows for art to be created without this risk discussed. There are, however, other programs which do not have these safeguards. You could type literally anyone into the search bar and it will reference that person and portray them in any way you want. So first, are the safeguards really good that Dolly puts in? As good um, as they, they are say? good. Uh, they're not perfect. Um, there's always going to be ways around it. You are inherently in an adversarial uh, framework. And so people are going to find ways to break it and new names will show up that it'll take a while for this to uh, catch up with. But it's sort of beside the point because shortly after Dolly was released, uh, another version of this 
image synthesis was released called Stable Diffusion with zero guardrails. You can put in anybody's name. You can create sexually explicit material. You can create violence. It no 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 rules, and it's completely open source. We it took us all of an hour to get one running up on one of our computers, and all of the safeguards that OpenAI very thoughtfully put in, in some ways, don't matter anymore. Um, and by the way, what's interesting about this is you've seen three very different approaches to this technology. We've been talking about OpenAI's thoughtful, hey, let's release this, but let's put safeguards. I've mentioned stable diffusion with zero safeguards. Google has a version of this, and they refuse to release it. Period. End of sentence. They will not. I, I couldn't even get access as a forensic scientist saying I wanted to just do forensic analysis. They said no. We will not give access to anybody. And so now you've seen three very different approaches to this. But of course, it's the lowest common denominator that matters. Uh, yeah. And the lowest common denominator is no rules. Yeah. But really quick, did Google share their rationale for not even sharing it with you? They did. The rationale was they are concerned about misuse. Um, and they are not releasing it. Ooh, pretty scary. At the same time, Stable Diffusion's posture towards this feels like what I've heard a lot, which is give more people access. It shouldn't just be the state or tech giants having this. It democratizes and so sure. on. What's your sure. response to that? Yeah, replace AI image generation with any other word. Guns, bazookas, tanks, nuclear weapons, germ warfare. And that statement doesn't seem as reasonable, does it? When you have a technology where it can be misused, simply saying, let's democratize access to it is not necessarily a sensible approach to this. So I don't buy that argument. I understand the, the philosophy and the idealism, but if we have learned anything over the last 20 years, it is that unleashing technology on the public without safeguards leads to chaos. And you don't have to look much further than social media to look at the chaos that is being pushed onto individuals and societies and democracies because we have naively thought democratizing access to technology is inherently good. And it turns out not so much. And I think we should learn something from those mistakes. So you're saying that AI, in terms of its dangers, its chaos is on the level of germ warfare and nukes? I would say that it may very well become on that level um, because when you control information, you control everything. How do you, for example, have a democracy if we can't agree on basic facts? How do we tackle climate change if we can't agree on basic facts? How do you tackle a global pandemic that has killed millions of people if we can't agree on basic facts? How do you address social ills if we can't agree on basic facts? I mean, these are not... Uh, theoretical threats. These are existential threats to society um, when the, there's an information chaos. And I'm not saying that these images themselves are leading to that, but they are part of a problem that we have online with getting trusted information. Hmm. Well, listener Greg writes, and again, listeners, if you have thoughts or reactions to what you're hearing, you can always post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Greg writes, open AI can ban human images, but billions of dollars are being put into AI or machine learning by all kinds of people, companies, or states. So if you have money and power, you can do anything. Only you, me, and the masses will be banned. Money people will make synthetic pictures of humans saying and doing whatever they want for whatever reason they have. So what, what are... The solutions here. Often we go to, okay, someone needs to be regulating this. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about why often that 
that statement comes sometimes even with like a laugh. I, I guess maybe because we saw some of the attempts to regulate this play out <laughs> yeah. earlier years. I mean, yeah. So look, when you are talking about existential threats to democracy and society, of course, the first thing we should think about is government regulation. The problem, of course, is the technology moves spectacularly fast and the governments move spectacularly slowly. Number one. Number two is the governments, particularly our representatives, are not particularly good at understanding very sophisticated technologies and they need to get better at it. Um, and number three, of course, is we can try to regulate within our borders, 350 some million people, but it's a big world out there and we can't control what happens outside of our borders. And of course, the Internet doesn't know borders. So in terms of solutions, I, I think there are a number of things to think about. We should absolutely think about sensible government regulation around harmful AI and how it's being deployed, not just in this space, but in all spaces. We should think about that and we should think about that seriously. Um, I think we should have uh, conversations like you and I are having right now. So people become aware. Education, awareness will help. Um, I think there's a whole nother way of thinking about authentication. So what we spend most of our time doing here in my lab is somebody sends me an image or a video and we try to determine if it's real or fake. Okay. Now there's another way to think about this problem, which is that when you record an image or a video at the point of recording, you can authenticate. And there's a really nice initiative called the C2PA, the Coalition for Content Provenance and Authentication, which is a not-for-profit, multi-stakeholder, private sector, NGOs, academics, building a system that would allow your device, the very device that I'm holding in my hand, my phone, that when I take an image or a video or an audio, it will authenticate the date and time, the location, who took it, and all the pixels are authentic so that when that piece of content makes its way onto the internet, then I can trust that it has been authentic. And I like that technology a lot because it's here, it works, and it will scale. But it doesn't mean we can simply ignore all the other problems. But I think it's part of a larger solution that includes education, that includes regulation, that includes technology. And here's the last one, which is more corporate responsibility. OpenAI has done a good job, but I don't think you can say that all companies have the same thoughtfulness that we have seen coming out of OpenAI. Well, also, the technologies that you're talking about, I don't know if it's the authentication technology specifically, but also just the ability to determine whether something is fake. Aren't we relying on tech companies to come up with that too? Yeah, well, you're relying on two things. One is for them to develop in obviously collaboration with universities and researchers, technology to detect this, but also to care about deploying it. When we live in a world, social media, that profits from user-generated content, from user engagement, it's not clear that it is in their benefit to promote trusted, honest uh, content over outrage and anger and salaciousness and conspiracies. And so part of the problem is the business models of social media today are very much driven by user engagement. And you know, the NPRs of the world, the KQBDs of the world, isn't the thing that drives the mass engagement. What drives mass engagement is the trashiest, most outrageous content. And we should talk about why that is, by the way. Yeah. Um, but th there, there's, a, there's a misalignment of the corporate interests and what we as a society want. Well, here are a couple of people who are kind of, I think, raising questions about whether or not we can trust companies. And even DJ writes, 
From what I can understand, AI tools like Dolly have the potential to be immensely dangerous. And not only does this come from the user level, but also from the developers like predictive policing and facial recognition and surveillance regimes. It feels hypocritical to be called open AI and not tell us what library you get your images from. Artists claim it's being used to steal their work. So here's a company that you're saying is being really thoughtful but DJ's yeah. raising some other points. What do you think about it? That's DJ's a valid saying? point. And I think there's a really, I'm not a copyright expert, but I think there's a really interesting question is that if you train an AI system on hundreds of millions of images, um, and, and even if your AI system doesn't literally use that those content, but it's been trained on it, what rights do those people who have those images have? Now, as I understand it, the images that were used were open source and or licensed. Um, I don't have direct access to that, but that, I think that was a reasonably uh, thoughtful answer to that question. But I don't think you can say that about, for example, Clearview AI that has scraped billions of images from the web and has used that for facial recognition in, um, licensed to law enforcement. They have done that violating the terms of service and privacy of many millions and millions of users. So I think that's a legitimate point to make is that how are these systems being trained? And also, is there bias in the data? So for example, in policing, if we use historical data, that historical data is biased against people of color. And if you simply train an AI algorithm, you are simply going to repeat history. And so I think that is a, it's a, it's a legitimate and reasonable concern to have, both from the bias perspective, but also from the fairness perspective. Hmm. Well, this listener tweets along those lines. My experience is that the AI text to image apps are highly biased. For example, a text prompt like woman wearing a dress will always default to an image of a white woman wearing a dress. We're talking with Hani Farid, a professor at UC Berkeley with a joint appointment in electrical engineering and computer sciences in the School of Information. We're talking about DALI and the new frontiers of online image generation and its implications for misinformation. And you, our listeners, are sharing if you've ever fallen for a fake image or a video and what you learned from that experience. The questions that you have about this new frontier of uh, image, video, audio generation, uh, what you love or, or fear about it. Again, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Joanne writes, I've received emails saying they have created artificial embarrassing videos of me and they threaten to use these to destroy my professional reputation, then demand a ransom. What should I do? Is there any way to prevent this? This is slightly different, but it's almost like because we know or you know that we are capable of doing this, the tech is out there. We're going to just start at this really low level and send emails trying to threaten you around it. Sure. Sure. Good. Let's talk about that. So this is probably one of the most awful and most uh, prolific misuses of synthetic media and deepfakes, which is non-consensual sexual imagery. People taking a person's likeness and inserting them into sexually explicit material or now whole cloth synthesizing it. So for example, you heard earlier that you can take an existing image and edit out parts of it. Now, OpenAI has put safeguards in, but Stable Diffusion hasn't. So can I take an image of me or you, give it to Stable Diffusion and edit from the neck down saying a naked photo of this person? Sure, of course you can. And now you can weaponize that. You can start to try to uh, uh, blackmail people. Um, and this is not 
hypothetical, this is absolutely happening. There are dozens of apps and dozens of websites out there that will generate non-consensual sexual imagery for you. And this, we've already seen stable diffusion being used to create non-consensual sexual imagery. It's already happening. Um, and I don't think that there's anything you can do about it. Um, I think the, the the best you can hope for is that people, we educate people that these images are not real, but it doesn't really help with the problem is that people are still going to see an image of your likeness in an explicit material. And there's nothing we can do about that because the internet is awful. So California does have two laws about deep fakes on yeah. the books, one which allows anyone whose image is non-consensually non used in pornography to sue, yeah. and the other which prohibits the malicious use of deep fakes for like a candidate yeah. uh, for office. Good. What do you think of those? <laughs> Good. So let's talk about that. So uh, not just California, several states, um, Australia has laws against non-consensual sexual imagery. There are some problems with the laws. Um, you have to prove intent to harm. It's not just that you it's illegal to create it. You have to prove that it was in your intent to harm somebody. And proving intent is very, very difficult. And also this works within the, the borders of California. Uh, what happens when this is coming from wherever, Romania, uh, Russia, China? Um, we have no ability to litigate this here. And here's the thing too, is that, look, maybe there'll be retribution downstream. Think Alex Jones. But in the interim, those images, once they are on the internet, they don't come down and the harm is done. And maybe, maybe you'll have some retribution a year, 10 years from now, but it doesn't really deal with the problem. Um, I think also the deep fake bill on politics is, is problematic because it's very narrowly tailored. There are all kinds of things you have to show. And again, within the California borders. So I think they were well-intentioned, but I think they are largely impotent. Mm. Well, we are talking with Hani Farid about how good and realistic fake images and video are getting and how the technology is becoming easier and easier for anyone to access. You can share your thoughts on this with us again. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at KQED Forum. Email address forum at kqed.org. Our number 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about how the technology for generating fake images and video is getting really good and really accessible. Here are a couple of recent deep fake examples. I'm going to show you some magic. It's the real thing. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's all the real thing. The <laughs> Ukrainians. Шановні захисники, бути президентом виявилося не так вже й легко. Я змушений приймати складні рішення. That first one was a deepfake video of Tom Cruise from TikTok, and it went viral on February 21. That was not Tom Cruise. The second one is a deepfake video that uh, purported to show the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, telling his soldiers to surrender to Russia. Honey Farid, when you hear those things, like, what concerns you most about deepfakes? Good. Let's see. Uh, let's start with President Zelensky. Um, first of all, what was fascinating about that deep fake is that President Zelensky predicted it. Um, at the beginning of the war, he said, you are going to see a deep fake of me surrendering. It won't be me. <laughs> and that pre-bunking helped, by the way. Um, we have been working over the last oh, six months now in developing very specific technology to protect him from deep fakes. So what we do is we measure um, his mannerisms and how he talks with his hands and his vocal fingerprint. And we build what we, what we call a soft biometric model so that when videos are released of him, we can validate whether they're real or not. Um, that was a pretty crude deep fake, the Zelensky mm -hmm. one, but it made it onto the airwaves in Ukraine. And it circulated for a little bit until it was debunked. Now, the Tom Cruise deep fakes, and if you, if you haven't seen these Go, go to TikTok and look for Tom Cruise deep, deep, uh, uh, deep fake. They are probably the cutting edge video-based deep fakes. We've been talking about images up until now. These are video. I will tell you that when I first saw the first uh, deep fake Tom Cruise, I thought it was the real Tom Cruise. Wow. Um, it was that good. And by the way, how great would it have been if it really was? And he was <laughs> pretending to be a deep fake. Oh, my <laughs> he God. He can say anything he wants. Oh, that's so many um, levels. Yes. <laughs> there's, there's a lot going on behind that deep fake. So first of all, the impersonator is very talented. Sort of looks like Tom Cruise. He's got the hair. He's got the voice. He's got the mannerisms. Uh, Chris Ume, who created that, is incredibly talented, uh, special effects um, artist. Uh, but that is, I think when you look at that, you can extrapolate out. And that's where we are going. Um, things that look nearly indistinguishable. I'll just say one last thing on this. Which is the way we determined that it was fake, convincingly, is that that particular type of deep fake is called a face swap deep fake, which replaces uh, the face from the eyebrows to the chin and the cheek to cheek. Everything else is the imposter. And there was this great part in the videos and what made it very compelling is how much he can turn his head. That has been in the past very difficult to synthesize. And at some point you see almost a profile view and you can see the ear of the imposter. Turns out the ears are a pretty good biometric. And Every once in a while, the internet delivers. So if you search uh, Tom Cruise ear, you will find hundreds and hundreds of images of Tom Cruise's ear. I don't know why, but there they are. Tom Cruise has an attached earlobe uh, and the imposter does not. Uh, and there are other structural differences. So using the ears, we are able to show that it's a different individual. Um, and that's, by the way, you just know in a couple of years, they're going to figure out how to synthesize the ears properly. And that technique will no longer work and we'll have to move on to the next technique. 
Wow. Well, this listener tweets, your guest's comments on the democratization of knowledge and technology and how it presents not just one existential threat, but a multitude of them, explains well why I think humanity is doomed. (laughs) But I I do want to ask you about also the next level. You've talked about the liar's dividend. Can you explain what that is and why this listener's comment has also been a thought in my head. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, and I, it's not an unreasonable comment and concern. I, I, I tend to be an optimist. Um, I am concerned about a number of things, but the liar's dividend, I think, is a very real concern. So we should be worried about synthetic media. We should be worried about non-consensual sexual imagery. We should be worried in the, the days, hours in the lead up to an election, a fake video of, of President Biden is released and it swings an election. Uh, we, should worry, we should be worried about small and large scale fraud. But here's the thing that I really worry about, which is that if we enter this world where any image, any audio, any video, any tweet, any article can be fake, well, then nothing has to be real. We can simply dismiss things that we don't like or agree with. And now we are living in completely alternate universes relative to those around us. And you see this playing out on a regular basis. So for example, how quickly this happened. 2015, then candidate Trump gets himself in trouble for the for saying awful things about women on the Access Hollywood tape. Year and a half later, deep fakes are now on the horizon. They've, they've come into our vocabulary. He's asked about the audio and you know what he says? It's fake, done. Next question, I have no more to say about this. And now that is what you are seeing. So police violence, fake. Human rights violations, fake. A politician says something inappropriate, fake. Your followers believe it, nobody else does, and now we are living in alternate realities, the so-called liar's dividend. And now we have a double-fisted weapon. I can create fake content, and I can deny reality with exactly using exactly the same specter of that technology. And that, living in alternate universes, I don't know how we move forward with democracy or society for that matter. Well, another listener tweets, I've fallen for fake imagery, specifically Clarence Thomas's wife wearing a fancy gala dress with imagery of the January 6th insurrection and of MAGA. Uh, I I feel like we're we're getting in some, we're pointing at confirmation bias as one reason why we would believe just from the specter of the fake imagery and so on, and that it could go into that spiral. You also said something earlier that I did want to follow up on, honey, where you said, why are we drawn to the trashiest images or the most sensational? Why? Do you want to say a little bit more about whether or not through this process, you've really looked at the human psyche and answered some of these questions? I I am not a psychologist, but I think there's at least two things going on here. um, And I can speak to at least one of them. I think there is confirmation bias, as you said. And and this is a well-known effect in the psychology literature is that we are drawn to things that confirm to our worldview. But there's something else I think more nefarious here, which is that for the last 10, 15 years, we've all been living in social media world. And social media world has done a very good job of taking that inherent confirmation bias and jacking it up because the way we interact with social media on Facebook, on TikTok, on Twitter, on Instagram is that algorithms decide what we see, hear, read, and eventually believe. And these algorithms are distorting our worldview. Your, your newsfeed on Facebook is not chronological, it is not random, and it is based on one thing and primarily one thing only, which is deliver 
content to maximize user engagement and the delivery of ads. And so our world for years now has been heavily distorted through these algorithms that are trying to drive user engagement and therefore profit. Um, and if you haven't done so already, you should delete Facebook and you should delete Twitter and you should delete social media because it is bad for you. It's bad for your physical health. It's bad for your mental health. And that's not just me saying it. The literature says social media is bad for you. Um, so I think that that has taken this inherent characteristic that we have as humans, understandably so, and has really exaggerated the effect to, to a, quite a detriment for all of us. Well, we're still getting a ton of comments, but let me go to a call. Let me go to Dan in Santa Clara. Hi, Dan. Hi, thank you. Uh, actually, your guest, uh, thank you. You anticipated my question. So the follow-up question that I would have liked to have asked is about uh, just declaring real news, fake news, and moving on. It appears uh, we're moving back into sort of the 1800s where everybody had their own political party um, newspaper and they had their own alternative realities and their own alternative facts. I was wondering if you could speak to that a bit. And also, yeah. if that's the case, what we also had at that point was greater likelihood of nations going to war. Mm -hmm. Damn, yeah. Dan, I think you're right. Um, I think the paradox of the Internet was that the idea was to democratize access to knowledge and information and to wrestle away from the handful of publishers, the ability to publish. And therefore, that was the big leap now, the world would be better off. But of course, what we've done is we've just traded off who controls information. It went from CBS, ABC, NBC, Nightly News to Facebook. <laughs> and if you ask me which one I would prefer, I would rather go back to the nightly news. Why? Because they have editorial standards. They have laws that limit the things they can and cannot do. And you can't say that about Facebook. Uh, the business model is different, right? We had news on television because that was the price you paid for the airwaves. It was not about profit. It was about this is what we are doing one hour a day. And then the other 23 hours a day, we can do whatever we want. And so I think that this has been the paradox of the internet. It, it has not been what we were promised. It has not been a true democratization. There are now five tech companies that control the internet. And I think that has been to the detriment because they have not brought in the editorial standards and the journalistic standards that, although they are not perfect, the mainstream media has. Well, Stephen writes, the thing I'm most concerned about is not the capacity of this technology to create fake information. It is the capacity of this technology to create a cultural climate where people become skeptical of actual facts. We are talking with Dr. Hani Farid, who is many things, a professor at UC Berkeley with a joint appointment in electrical engineering and computer sciences in the School of Information, a member of the Berkeley Artificial Intelligence Lab, and a senior faculty advisor for the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're for real. This is really Forum. <laughs> But uh, Alyssa writes, I'm not impressed with this type of technology. We're living in a society where people's brains are suppressed already by technology. This is just another suck of creativity. Leslie asks, what's the practical value of mashing up or creating digital images? And another listener writes, while the negative consequences of image generation technology are clear, in which ways do you see this technology being used for good? And how does this technology coexist with the current human creator ecosystem? Yeah, what are the benefits of this, honey? Yeah, I I'm the wrong person to ask that question to. I, you had asked earlier, 
uh, the question of, you know, we build sometimes we build things sometimes because we can and not necessarily because we should. And I'm not 100% convinced that we should have done um, this stuff. And I don't I'm not referring specifically to Dolly, I'm referring to the general world of synthetic media. Um, having said that, look, where most of this technology comes from is Hollywood studios, right? Mostly, if you go back for decades now, the computer graphics community, which this is essentially part of, has developed technology that allows for really cool special effects in Hollywood studios. And now we've just democratized access to that. I think it, it's fun. I think I can imagine it, it being creative. I can imagine being a creative person and saying, I've got this sort of vague idea of something and I type it into Dali and I get inspired. Um, I think the question is not, are there, are there interesting and creative applications? I, I think there are. I think the question is, is, are those outweighed by the downsides? And if so, by how much? And if so, then what do we do about it? And from my world, and, and I admit that I have a biased worldview because I, I come at it from the other side, um, I see more on the downside than the upside. Um, that's not to say that it always has to be that way. Um, that's not to say that we can't mitigate the harms. Um, but uh, the reality today is the cat is out of the bag. We're not putting this technology back. Um, and so we're going to have to deal with it one way or another. As much as I would like to, to, to change the world by just unplugging the internet some days, it's not going to happen. And we're going to have to start to get uh, more serious about uh, dealing and mitigating with the harms that is coming from these types of technologies. Well, Nora writes, as a designer and illustrator, I am saddened that AI will put artists out of business. Though I use computer illustration myself, I often see failures by untrained because it's easy application of design. I worry that coming generations are not learning critical thinking and that human judgment with all its flaws is at risk. It will become easier and easier to manipulate people in a time when many don't trust other humans. This is frightening. I mean, this has also been talked about in the journalism world. You could get open AI to write your newscasts or, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, people can write entire screenplays <laughs> using yeah. artificial intelligence as well. There are so many fields where, where AI has the capacity to have a massive impact. I guess the other thing that I want to ask you is, so I listened back a little bit to the conversation we had early in 2019, Hani, and at that time, you know, we were talking about where this is going the speed with which we could just continue to get more and more sophisticated in terms of the technological developments, the kinds of technological developments that could create large-scale impacts, large-scale social change. And I'm wondering, because what I feel like I'm hearing and reading is that even the speed that you and I were worried about back in 2019, that it's even faster than a lot of people predicted it would be. Is that right? I, I think you're right, Mina. I, I remember the conversation well, and I remember making some soft predictions, but I remember talking in five-year increments, not two-year increments. And this is the nature of technological disruptions. It's it's a hockey stick. It happens very, very fast. It's somewhat unpredictable. And I think that the deep fake and synthetic media uh, landscape has shifted much, much faster than I expected. Um, and I don't 
see any sign of slowing down. I don't think it's slowing down. Um, and so I think we'll have a conversation hopefully in another two years and I imagine things will be much more complicated. Here's one more thing about, uh, I think it was Nora's comment that I just wanted to touch on. Yeah, is that yeah, what's please. interesting about this disruption is we tend to think of disruption of technology impacting manual labor, right? Robots doing the work of humans. But now we're talking about AI disrupting creative tasks. The one thing that we thought we had over the machines. And by the way, it's not just creative. Uh, doctors, radiologists, AI systems are getting so good now that they can read x-rays and CT scans and MRIs um, on par or better than physicians. So you are talking about disrupting, you know, not just what would consider to be manual labor, but also things that we thought were safe for a while. And by the way, also my job, um, p p computer scientists are now starting to uh, uh, develop technology to write computer code that will then build the next generation of AI. Um, and so there's, it's a really interesting um, landscape because you're seeing how AI is starting to disrupt. And I think, again, I don't think you can stop this. So it's a question of how do we come to grips with this massive disruption on the scale of the industrial revolution? You are constantly deep in it, and you see some of the worst and disgusting things that people can generate yeah. using these kinds of technologies. So how do you not freak out? <laughs> Honey. I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm stockpiling food and water. I don't know about everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I... It's been a rough few years uh, in combination with COVID and world events. It's been a hard few years and, and it's hard to be optimistic about the next few years right now. Um, I don't think you can you know, blame AI for that. I think that's it's a, it's a confluence of many things happening. Here's, here's how I get up in the morning. I, I don't know what else to do. I mean, we, we've got to move forward and we've got to have... Uh, uh, all of us have to work together to try to make this better. And while... I am quick to blame the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Facebooks of the world for the, the chaos that they have induced on society. At the end of the day, we as individuals can't escape responsibility. We're the idiots on Facebook clicking on this stuff. We're the jerks on Twitter yelling and screaming at each other. We are contributing to this. And so I think we all have to look inward I think we have to look outward, and I think we have to look to our government regulators to do a better job than they have done over the last 20 years. UC Berkeley's Hani Fareed, deepfake expert, expert on many things. Thank you very much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mina. Always great to talk to you. And my thanks to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. And uh, Forum is also produced by Grace Wan. Our lead producer is Susie Britton. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Our senior producer is Susan Davis. Our engineers are Danny Bringer and Katie McMurrin. And with help this week from Chris Hoff and Brendan Willard. Interns are Lulu Ralda and Posse Kelly Campos. You have been listening to Forum. Thank you. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, Tune in to KQED, 
always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. 